everyone. It's really good to see you and it's good to be with you. Um, so if you're new, I'm Lindsay. Welcome to our church. Um, and again, if I haven't gotten the chance to meet you, I would really love the opportunity to do that uh, before you leave tonight. So as Zach set up for us, over the next few weeks, we are taking a closer look um, at the early Christian church. This group of men and women tasked with this incredible mission, right? To spread and to take the story of Jesus, the story of his life and of his death and of his resurrection, everything that they have come to see and know and witness themselves. They're to now take that and spread it to the ends of the earth. And I wanna quickly point out right here two things about God's creation project right off the bat. Um, and the first thing, one, is that the design has always been that humanity would bring this vision to life in partnership with God, of course. Meaning that God chose to carry out his plans for the earth and for creation through human beings. And two, the design has also always been to expand. And so we see this in the first instructions given to humanity, that they are to reign and to rule over the creation, and that they're to be fruitful and multiply. So we see that they're supposed to expand, to, to fill the earth. And then when that gets messed up, God chooses another man, Abraham, who we have talked about before, to continue the project. And the promise is that Abraham's family, his descendants, they will come to bless all people, the whole world, not just those directly connected to his bloodline. But then we get this really long history of the Israelites, of Abraham's descendants, messing this up time and time again. And so then finally, Jesus is sent to fulfill this dream that God has always held for humanity. And we see it again in Jesus's final instructions, which we call the Great Commission. We see that the plan is still, is still to work through people, that you and I have a role to play in God's plan. And we see that Jesus is explicit about this expansive, this all-embracing nature of this mission when we, he says to go and make disciples of every nation. So the goal, the design, the vision has always been to spread out, to expand, to turn outward, to include every tribe, nation, and tongue. So let's see now what has happened so far and kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at tonight. So the book of Acts, it begins in Jerusalem, the holy city. It is the center, the Mecca of all Jewish life and tradition. And we're at the time in history after Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and now he's ascended to heaven. And the Holy Spirit has now been sent to live in every Jesus-believing person. And we see the disciples empowered to perform miracles, and healings, and these unbelievable signs that there is something going on here to pay attention to. And we see these early believers, like Zach talked about, they band together and they form these communities that function more like families. We talked about that two weeks ago. They live very interconnected and dependent on one another. And often I think that our tendency might be to look back at the first few chapters in Acts and we kind of romanticize the spirituality of the early church. We hear in these early chapters, it describes these incredible gifts of the spirit, 
right? People are speaking in new languages and they're being healed. Peter is delivering these powerful, just awe-inspiring sermons that people wanna believe and follow Jesus after they hear them. Everyone is, is being generous. People are united. They're sharing things that they have with one another. They're bonding in community. And I think we're tempted to think, well, this kind of sounds like a little utopia. While all of that is true, and it did happen, I want us to hold alongside it the reality that this was also an incredibly fragile and very chaotic moment in the life of the new church. Right? The disciples, they really had no formulated plan. Right? They hadn't attended church leadership conferences where you work out your strategy. And they hadn't listened to the latest leadership podcast right, on how to maximize your systems of effectiveness. There was no scheme for, for preaching or teaching, but they were quite literally day by day depending on the Holy Spirit to lead them. And they were almost unconsciously, just moment by moment, establishing and building this thing that we have come to call church. And meanwhile, this passionate movement, it was antagonizing and it was agitating the very powerful and dangerous people that had just nailed Jesus to a cross just a little bit over a month ago. And persecution was about more than the loss of comfort or the threat of rejection, but it was about the very real threat of death and torture to you and to anyone you were connected to. And so this is the lens that, that we should approach or apply to our reading of Acts as we seek to understand the climate that the early church was, was born out of. So we don't get but five chapters in. So we do not get very far before things start to escalate and trouble rises, which is where we are picking up tonight in chapter six with an issue of conflict and of power and of leadership. And so let's take a second and explore some of our own ideas about power and leadership before we get to the text. Now, I would say our relationship with power and leadership is complicated at best. I think we can all probably admit that too much power is a bad thing. We can all probably point to some historical figure or an experience where too much power became coercive and even abusive. But then at the same time, I think we could also all admit that no sense of power, that powerlessness and helplessness is also a dreaded experience. And so that doesn't really seem to be the answer to this problem of power. And so really, maybe we could conclude that power itself isn't always the issue, but how it's wielded and used and measured tends to be the issue. Is power being used to oppress and marginalize people? Is it being used to further alienate and divide people? Is it being measured by the world standards of wealth and success and status? Which then brings us to the question of leadership, of how power is being used. And we can look at leadership from a few different angles. So let's take personally, for example. What do you think right, makes someone a good leader? Is it a certain set of personality traits that someone might exhibit? Is leadership something that you're just born with or you're not? Or is it something that can be learned and honed like, like a craft or a skill or a trade? We likely each have our own ideas about what makes a good leader and there's probably some overlap in that. 
And we all probably have a personal experience we could point to that has shaped that perception. Maybe it's a good coach or a good teacher who inspired you or believed in you. And conversely, maybe you have, there's a parent or a boss that has belittled you or berated you. And culturally, we tend to define leadership in terms of position and an authority. And as a postmodern culture, we are much more skeptical and suspicious and even distrusting of positions of authority than we ever have been. Culturally, people are asking harder questions of those in power, and they want to know whose voices and perspectives are represented in positions of authority. And so whatever your relationship to power and leadership, my encouragement is to hold it loosely. Hold it loosely as we hold up this example of how the early church dealt with conflict and issues of power and leadership and possibly let it challenge some of our old ideas and maybe possibly affirm what you have already held true and right and best. So we're gonna look at the first seven verses in Acts chapter six. Um, I'm just gonna read through it all first because it's a short little interaction and then we'll go back in and take a closer look. So this is Acts six, verse one. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek speaking believers complained about the Hebrew speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. And so the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. And they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running the food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. And everyone liked this idea. And then they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, who we're going to look at next week. Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas of Antioch. And these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. And the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So... In verse one, we find out that the church is growing rapidly. There are more and more people coming to believe in Jesus. And as they grow, this conflict breaks out. And the conflict is between Hebrew speaking Christians. And these were likely Jewish people who had lived locally in Jerusalem that had been converted and Greek speaking Christians. And now remember that there's just been these two huge Jewish holidays and festivals. There was Passover at the time of Easter, and they've just had Pentecost. And so it's likely that there were people from out of town in Jerusalem for these two huge festivals and holidays. And so these Greek-speaking Christians had just recently been converted. And the Greek-speaking believers, they bring up an issue of justice within their community. And now I realize that word raises the defenses of a lot of people. And I recognize that our political and our social climate makes this a very delicate conversation and it should be treated as such. I also realize there's a great debate about the church's role and responsibility in issues of social justice, which I would love to have a conversation about if that is something you have questions about. But as the Bible expresses justice and just relationships, 
We as Kindred Church, we do not believe that either political party has figured this out. And so this isn't meant to be intentionally aggravating or adversarial. That is not to divide us further in that way because there is plenty of that. It's not the purpose of this. So instead, let me propose a biblical definition of justice, which would be this. Justice is to give someone what they are due, to give someone what they are owed. And each person is owed or is due dignity and value and worth as an image bearer of the creator God himself. As someone who represents the image of God, each person is due that dignity, value, and respect. And so working from this definition, we see the way that Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God and the way that he lived this out by spending his time with the outcast and with the sinner and the marginalized, it restored those who were excluded or who were stripped of what they were due by the religious and the caste systems of his day. So he reordered and he reprioritized the status quo that had robbed people of the things that they were due. And so the Greek speaking believers, they bring up this problem of justice and discrimination that their widows and their poor are being neglected food and neglected rations by the Hebrew speaking believers in this daily food distribution. Other quick note, just really fast. I think that the present day church, I think that we would be wise to notice that the presence of these gifts and miracles and this supernatural power, this doesn't make the people of the early church spiritually superior than those of us living 2000 years later. Because among all of these signs and these miraculous wonders are whispers of favoritism and gossip and unfairness. And this group of people, they had to struggle through disagreement in order to experience the fullness of God. Not much different than we have to today too. And so we would be mistaken to think that the spiritual maturity of every believer was really that far ahead, right, of any of us in this room. Now, the text, it's not clear whether the neglect was intentional or it was born out of hatred or despise of the Greek-speaking believers. And some actually proposed that this inequity was unintentional, that it was due to the language barrier between these two groups. But regardless, the first lesson from the apostles is how they validate the experience of the group being marginalized. The first lesson is that biblical leadership listens to the needs of its people, right? We see this in verse two, when they call the believers all together to address this issue brought before them. And it's the kind of listening that doesn't just like pacify or kind of placate the problem, but it's the kind of listening that believes the story of the group or the person being treated unfairly. So they hear this complaint of the Greek speaking believers and notice what the apostles don't do because that's important too. They don't tell the widows, well, you should just be thankful for the things that you are getting. You, you should just be grateful for what you do have. They don't attack the character of the poor saying things like, well, they're always out for more or they're lazy and they're ungrateful and they're always complaining. Gosh, like the poor, am I right? They don't do that. But good biblical leadership listens to the plight of the afflicted and it believes them. 
So now how did the church go about solving this problem? Well, let's look at verses two through six. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God and not running the food program. And so you're gonna select seven men who are well-respected, full of the spirit and wisdom, and we're gonna give them this responsibility that used to be ours, that we are not carrying out very well. And then we apostles, we can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. And everybody really liked this idea. And then they select their seven. Again, notice what they don't do. They don't take up a suggestion box, right? And they don't schedule a bunch of committee meetings for how to make sure all the widows are being treated fairly. And they don't hire in a consultant to to take some time to reflect on how we manage our responsibility better. But what they do is they figure out a way to share the authority that had been given to them. They solve this issue in front of them by changing the entire leadership structure. The disciples realize their gifts are better focused on prayer and the teaching of the word of God. And therefore, they they charge their following to to raise up, to say, pick seven from within this community, to then take responsibility for this part of the ministry. And we also have to be careful in our modern Western church context, not to minimize the role of food distribution, but this was something crucial to the survival and the health and the witness, which just means the credibility of the early church. And we should notice too that these verses, they place special emphasis on the standard of character to be exhibited by these leaders, that they should be well-respected by other people who know them well, that they should be full of the Spirit, meaning it is clear that their lives are being led by God and His wisdom. And so here we have our second lesson. Biblical leadership shifts the locus of power. It shifts the center or where power comes from. This is who Jesus is. And this is what he does, right? Philippians 2, it talks about the way that Jesus gave up his divine privileges, how he left this place of perfection, right? The protection of heaven to come down into our mess, to be up close and experience all of the pain and the darkness of our world. He takes on this posture of a humble servant and he denies the ways that he could have exploited his power here on earth. And he lives a fully human life. Jesus is gracious and he is forgiving and he's accepting of the non-religious. He actually makes a place amongst his ranks, right, for the dropout and for the sellout and for the scandalized. And we see Jesus be harsh and condemning of the religious elite and for their lines of exclusivity and hierarchy and judgment. And Jesus on the cross is the ultimate example of this. He is put to death by the military power of the Roman government. It's this moment that looks like defeat when actually he is overcoming all of the sin and death and darkness of the world. It is the ultimate reversal. And so in the way of Jesus, good leadership, biblical leadership, it doesn't hoard power over other people, but it shares it and extends it, it gives up whatever position and resources it's been given to restore the dignity and the worth and the value of the disadvantaged and the downtrodden. Now, interestingly, 
right? The seven men chosen for this job, they were all Greek speaking, which when you read it plainly, that might not stick out. But when you study their names a little further, you come to see how the apostles, they didn't go, well, we should really split this thing like 60-40, right? So let's do four Hebrew speaking and let's do three Greek speaking. And that way it's all fair and it works out and everybody's feelings don't get hurt. The apostles don't do that, but they share every authority with the group who was being ignored. And this requires great humility, great humility. The opposite of humility is, is arrogance. And an arrogance in the apostles would have looked like, well, we know better than you. We know better, even though we don't know your language, we don't know your history, and we don't know your customs, and we don't know what's important to you and what you value, but we are going to impose what we think is better on you. They don't do that, but they adopt this posture of humility. And here we have our third lesson, right? The biblical leadership is willing to follow. What is so powerful about this example set for us in Acts 6 is that the apostles, they didn't assume that they knew the best way to address the needs of the Greek-speaking believers, but they were willing to admit their shortcomings, and then they yielded this part of their responsibility to seven men who were from that community who would uniquely and specifically know exactly how to address the needs of the group that was being treated unjustly. And it demonstrates this beautiful progression in the leadership structure of, of the early church. We see them go from joint worship. So there's people coming from different parts of the region and they speak different languages and they have some different cultures and customs, but they're worshiping together now. They're being taught by the word of God and they're praying together and so they're worshiping together. And we see that progress into friendship where they establish these communities and these bonds with one another where they are connected to each other and they depend on each other. So they establish a friendship. And then we see that progress into followers, right? And the Hebrew speaking believers, they begin to follow the leadership and the guidance and the direction of these seven Greek-speaking believers. And it's powerful, it's powerful, and it leads to the explosion of the gospel. Verse seven assures us of that. It says that God's message continued to spread throughout Jerusalem and that many came to know the freedom and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And isn't that the whole point? Isn't that the only point? So in closing, I believe that this is what Acts 6 would have for us, that if we let it instruct us, I believe that it has far-reaching implications for the church at large and for our church, Kindred, and for each of us individually. I think it has implications for how we engage with marginalized communities and groups. It is by no means a simple solution to a very complicated and layered problem, but I do believe it has illuminated a path forward, a path forward in how we might begin to dismantle some of these systems that oppress and rob every image bearer of the dignity, value, and worth that they are owed as a reflection of God. I think it has implications for how we might pursue missions or partnerships or relationships with people, 
people and organizations and groups that are just a little bit different than us from cultures that we don't quite understand. I think it has implications for how we might move through conflict and disagreement as a community of believers. And I believe it has implications for each one of us individually in the spheres where we each hold influence and power and leadership. And so looking back at those three lessons, that biblical leadership, it listens. It listens to the needs of its people and not to pacify a problem, but to really evaluate and understand what the people that have been entrusted to us need and desire. Biblical leadership shifts the locus of power. It doesn't hoard power over people, but it shares it, it releases it, it empowers others. And it's willing to follow. We are humble in our posture towards others and we don't hang on to things like pride and arrogance that say, well, we know better. So the invitation tonight is just to consider, is just to consider what ways these three lessons might challenge some, some old ideas about power and leadership that maybe we've been holding on to without even realizing it. Or maybe to confirm some of the things that you have felt like, I, I always thought that was true, but I just haven't seen it lived out anywhere, or at least not very often. And then to take it a step further, how might you specifically embrace these lessons in your own sphere, in your home, with your kids or with your family, or in your business, in your career, right, in your school, or at your place of employment or where you volunteer or on your team and how might we embrace and adopt some of these lessons? What might it change? So like the early church, we are not gonna be immune to conflict or to disagreement or to the misuse of power. And even though we are being led and filled by the spirit, we are still broken people and we are still in process. But when we lean into humility, when we're confronted, with our shortcomings and our mistakes. I believe it makes a way for the gospel, for the good news about Jesus to explode and to expand and to reach people in places that you and I haven't even considered yet. And isn't that the point? That others would come to know the grace and the freedom and the forgiveness and the salvation only available to us in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that matters. Will you pray with me, Kindred Church? God, God, thank you for tonight. God, the chance to gather in a room like this one with people who are like me and people who are unlike me. God, that's just so beautiful. And I don't wanna take for granted the chance to gather and to worship and to express how much we love you. God, I'm thankful that your design, God, that the way you set up this whole thing was to work through your people. God, and when that plan went wrong and when we messed it up, you didn't abandon the project, but you sent your son Jesus to show us what this really looks like. God, to redefine our definitions of things like power and of justice and of leadership. God, I pray that you would soften, soften the parts of our minds and our hearts that are resistant to the things that you wanna teach us, for the things that you have left us in this incredible book of Acts. 
about how your very first followers walked in step with you. God, I pray that you would just give us the courage and the bravery to maybe embrace and try on some of these lessons and just see what happens. Jesus, I am thankful for you and we need you and we love you. And in your name I pray, amen.